HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode has been brought to you by Sake Man, a group of sake superheroes bringing sake to the world. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today, we're going to be talking about some very special food. Supra, or a feast. And then again, all the food of the Republic of Georgia. Situated strategically at the crossroads of Europe and Asia sits an ancient land in the, on the Caucasus mountain range. It is the Republic of Georgia, a veritable market basket of agricultural bounty. And Georgia has a unique ancient cultural heritage that's famed for its traditions of hospitality and cuisine. 25 years ago, award-winning author, cookbook author, Dara Goldstein, introduced a generation of cooks to the culture and cuisine of that land in her book, The Georgian Feast. And today, Georgia has become the Georgia, the Georgia, the land Georgia, not Dara, Georgia <laughs> has become a very hot travel destination for both its beautiful land and its food and wine traditions. Fortunately for us, Dara has an updated anniversary edition of the Georgian Feast that's just been released and once again brings the marvels and tastes of that rich country to all of us. And she's here with me today to discuss the food of the Republic of Georgia. Welcome, Dara. Thanks, Linda. I'm always thrilled to talk to you. I keep thinking of Georgia as a person. But I know, well. it's so hard. It, it's a problematic name, I have to say, because you always have to say Georgia, Georgia and then you yeah. have to explain Well, it. in fact, they say just Georgia now, not the Republic of Georgia. Is that correct? I mean, now that, well, the, yeah, they've it's been getting independent there. for a while. It's getting there. Yeah. Um, Dara, I want to tell our readers a little bit about you, even though you have been a frequent visitor to my show. Uh, Dara is the Wilcox B. and Harriet M. Adsit Professor of Russian Emerita at Williams College, and she was a founding editor of Gastronomica, the Journal of Food and Culture, which was named the 2012 Public publication of the year by the James Beard Foundation. She's published widely on literature, culture, art, and cuisine, and has organized several exhibitions on 
um, graphic design and, and having to do with food and, and tools of the table. And she is the editor, was the editor, is the editor-in-chief of the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets. You were on to talk about that as well. And the author of five award-winning cookbooks. In addition to that, Dara ha- is, currently serves on the kitchen cabinet at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History and on the advisory board of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. So it is with great pleasure once again that I welcome you, Dara. Um, In this new edition of your book, The Georgian Feast, which I thought, oh, well, I'll just look through it because that's the same book that I, you know, I, well, it's, you know, it's different. You have, you actually revised it and wrote some beautiful introductory chapters or, or sections. And in that opening section, you wrote, Georgian hospitality supersedes all the political strife. Describe to me what sh- when your writing of this book and the original book, the changes that, <clears throat> all the changes that Georgia was going through at the time, previous changes, new changes. Then you went in and rewrote the book, and rewrote, and you had another edition come out, what, in 2000? Yeah, that was a slightly updated, yeah. so this one's really revised, so and I added new many, recipes. Right, so many changes. Tell me a little bit about what's <laughs> been going on there. Okay, this is a short version because we don't have time for the entire history. But I first visited Georgia in the late 1970s, which certainly dates me, but it was very much a part of the Soviet Union then. And going there from Moscow was like going to Shangri-La. I mean, there was sun, there were fruits, there was joyousness, um, particularly in the wintertime. And I was absolutely enthralled by this culture and by the flavors, the intensity of the flavors, and by the rituals of the table. I think that was what was so striking. When I went back again, having decided to write a cookbook, it was during, uh, it was right at the beginning of what turned into a civil war in Georgia, when uh, the region called Abkhazia, there was a lot of strife there, there were uh, people with machine guns in the streets, there was fighting. And in the thick of all this, we were still regaled with extraordinary feasts because the Georgians, throughout their history, since the land is so lush and it has been on the trade route from the Far East uh, to Istanbul, uh, people have wanted to conquer it and they have uh, been subjugated a number of times. But they understand something larger that they want to celebrate. So the hospitality for me became the through line to this book. And then, of course, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Georgia became independent, but there was civil war. There was a lot of chaos. But now it is uh, pretty much back on its feet. Yeah, a little pressures from places here and there. But, yeah, I mean, at the, I, I am just amazed. It's, it's my next place to go and visit. Um, and I will be referring to this book often. But I am, I'm amazed that it, it kind of is this microcosm of all different agricultural regions. I mean, tropical to northern cold cheese-making mountainous it sheep herding. It, it's not much larger than South Carolina, if you can picture South Carolina. But it goes from the Black Sea, which is subtropical, up to the mountains, uh, areas like Svaneti and Tusheti, which are in the Caucasus, so really high peaks. Yeah. And there's so much mythology tied up with it, too. So Mount Elbrus is apparently 
apparently where Prometheus was chained right. and where fire began. So there are these beautiful stories that are tied up with it. And then, of course, in the eastern part is the primary winemaking region called Cajeti. And that would be comparable to what we think of as, say, Napa Valley, even though they're making wine throughout the country. And the uh, winemaking tradition there is 8,000 years old. Yeah, I was I was kind of dating it back to um, Alice, Fe- well, Alice Fearing wrote that beautiful yeah. um, essay in your book as well on, yes. on the wine culture mm-hmm. in uh Which is really ancient. And if we think of our word wine, it probably goes, even though Georgian has its own language and it is not related to any of the other languages that we know, their word for wine, kvino, is probably where wine, vine, va, and all of those came from. Yeah, interesting. And even the the similarities of, of ancients, the same thing, using the, well, the ancients, we call them the amphora in the mm-hmm. in the Western world and civilization, but they call them the kvevri. Kvevri. And you okay. uh, don't, if you think of the amphora, it's usually something that you're carrying or transporting above ground. The kvevri are actually buried in the ground, and that's where the wine is fermented. Keep it cool and then stored. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's interesting. So many, so many interesting um, traditions. I mean, the culture itself dates back. To like 600 BC, no? Yeah, um, I'm never very good with my <laughs> centuries. BC. You wrote it, so I so I'm repeating. <laughs> okay, so if I said that, I I do fact check myself. Okay, good. Um, but yeah, and except to Christianity in the fifth century, and their alphabet is very ancient. They had their Renaissance in the 12th century <laughs> under Queen Tamar, who is in Georgian referred to as King Tamar. So there's this wonderful wow. tradition of really strong women there too, which I love. Well, it's just the, I mean, the terrain and the, and the fruits and vegetables. It really vegetable forward. Um, I mean, cuisine in many ways. It right? is. People eat a lot of meat now simply because this is modern times and uh, people in general are more affluent. But yes, it's very much plant-based. Um, you talked about all the turmoil initially, you know, in the, in the, the incursions. And in fact, you, you mentioned the word that they use for hello rather than hello. It's the word for victory. Yeah, and when you make a toast, Garmarjos, it means victory. Victory, so they're used but to not, winning. Right? Yeah, <laughs> although I wouldn't, when we say victory in English, there's something militaristic no. about yeah. it, but it, I don't know, culturally it just sounds more beautiful in Georgian. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Maybe it's just, we'll just think of it as yeah. freedom, you know, <laughs> something. Um, how, how best would you describe the, or could you ascribe a, taste, a particular taste or flavor to Georgian cuisine. Yeah, Um, I think about that a lot. And what struck me is how distinctive it is. So you have Turkey to the west, you have Armenia, um, Azerbaijan, you have uh, the North Caucasus and Russia to the north. So it, it has all of these very interesting culinary cultures around it, and yet it has retained its own flavor. And one of the things that makes it distinctive is um, the spice mixture that uh, you could say is somewhat comparable to, say, curry powder in 
India. So no one really uses curry powder as such, right. but there are lots of different spices that go into it. And the Georgians have this wonderful mixture of spices called Khmeli Suneli, mixed spice, that um, taken together and used in different combinations give this Georgian flavor. So it sings what we particularly don't know as blue fenugreek. And uh, they also use something that they call Imeretian saffron. So Imereti is a region in the central part of Georgia, and it's actually dried marigold I was going to say, they use a lot of dried marigolds, yeah. right? Yeah, I didn't know so that that's what it was. it's beautiful because like turmeric, it gives this golden color right. to food, but it also gives this really redolent, earthy flavor. Mm. And then you have coriander, you have dill, uh, sometimes basil, sometimes caraway. There are all kinds of things you can add. But uh, so it's quite aromatic. Um, the western part of the country really likes spicy food, so you have a lot of chili pepper. Uh, whereas in the east, it's a, a much uh, gentler flavor. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that I think is very characteristic is, and, and you find this in Persian cuisine, just platters and platters of fresh herbs right and right. when they make a lamb stew for instance or another kind of stew or say a, a soup with beef in it the last five minutes you put copious amounts of herbs i mean cupfuls and cupfuls of chopped herbs so uh, cilantro dill fresh basil especially tarragon they really love hmm. tarragon and you let it steam for just five minutes and so the herbs don't cook down into, you know, brownness. Right. But they make everything incredibly aromatic. And then there's always just a platter of fresh herbs to eat along with yes. whatever you're eating, right? Yes. It's just, yeah, I was always amazed at that, the, the couple of uh, dinners that, you know, that I have um, been to and experienced. And I am totally addicted to ajika, ajika. Oh. I, I'm, and <laughs> I, I think I just finished up the last, I made it, well, of course, when I made it, I made so much. I made an, vats of it. Um, it was um, Naomi DeGood's recipe. Oh, okay. And made a, a whole vat of it, and it made, I don't know how many quart jars. <laughs> <laughs> and you finished it. I'm impressed. Yeah, you bet. That is well, no, the, I gave some away. Okay. To, you know, to that, that's the Georgian <laughs> equivalent of salsa for uh, listeners who don't know. Yes. And it's a, it can be uh, like a paste, or else it can be more liquidy, like a a salsa, and it accompanies uh, meat and other dishes. And initially, very, very spicy. But I will tell you that um, you know the jars were kept for a while and, and then refrigerated. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not processed. And by the end of the time, a year later, it was um, it had lost mellowed. a lot of yeah, it mellowed yeah. out. And it could, I said, I can't put enough in. I can't <laughs> put enough in. But it's delicious. Yeah, I mean the flavors as you mentioned that, and I, when you were mentioning the spices, the fenugreek and the and the dried marigolds, I was thinking of all these things that went into it. It was just so so yeah, packed with the flavor. The other thing that is important in Georgian is that you have this wonderful balance of sour as well, and they use a native plum called kemali, uh -huh. and that is also a sauce that's frequently used. So you have the spicy ajika, or you have that kamali. And uh, it's a plum sauce that is seasoned with herbs mm. and some spices. And it's also uh, a counterpart to many of the very rich dairy dishes, which we haven't even talked about, and particularly 
the one that is sort of the rage all over <laughs> the place now, which is Khachapuri. Yeah. You know, yeah, Khachapuri. That, right. So you have to tell everybody what Khachapuri or Khachapuri if you're not, you know, traditional. Well, it's <laughs> cheese bread. And so when I wrote this book 25 years ago, I was sort of looking for investors. I was saying, this is the next great pizza. <laughs> and no one was paying attention. But now you can find so much Khachapuri. And basically, All varieties it is cheese stuffed into dough. And there are so many different varieties, different kinds of dough. It can be done in a griddle. It can be done in a wood-fired oven. Uh, it can be done in a regular oven. They use a cheese called sulguni, which is a cow's cheese that is salty. I usually use a mixture of Havarti and feta, but you can mix things up. It's very oozy. The one that is all over Instagram is the Ajarian Ajaruli Hachapuri, which looks like a boat. A boat, shaped like a boat. And you have tons of cheese inside, and then you break an egg on it, and you mix the egg in, and it's just uh, cholesterol city, but it will... (laughs) (laughs) But it's a meal, a meal in itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, when I asked you, well, how would you, and, and that was your excellent description of the of the flavors, bring it down to the, the spice mixtures, because, I mean, I often think of it as, as kind of very Persian or very Turkish, the, like the whole area. I don't know, somehow, you know, it, um, it was hard for me to identify it being, you know, part of the, when it was under the Soviet rule in the Soviet era. It is so unique unto itself that... Yeah, the other thing I forgot to mention. So when when you say uh, Turkey and Persia, what is, I keep saying, oh, this is what's most distinctive about Georgian cuisine. (laughs) But what is, is its use of walnuts. Yes, yes. So uh, we, in America, we think of walnuts, you add them to brownies or to cookies or um, you don't use them regularly in savory form. Occasionally, but it's not our go-to. Mm-hmm. And in Georgia, it's a very intrinsic part of a lot of dishes. The classic one would be what's called satsivi, uh, which is a, a ground walnut sauce. But a lot of their vegetable purees, I have a wonderful, a couple wonderful recipes for these purees, which can be made with beets or eggplant or leeks, and you grind the walnuts and you add fresh herbs and you add spices. And it's just a beautiful, very healthy puree, lots of omega-3s in the walnuts. New party dip, people. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, it gives um, a richness to the food without it being cloying. And they also used to use walnut oil exclusively. So mm, now I do it in the food processor, Yeah. Uh, for which I always reproach myself. <laughs> but I cannot stand there with a mortar and pestle to get all the walnut oil out and then pound and pound and pound the, yeah. Yeah. the nuts. But that's how they used to do it. Well, I, you know, it's interesting because one of my new fa- – I never thought it – I was – when I saw the recipe um, a couple of years ago for a dish with – eggplant and walnuts, you know, pounded together. I thought, I don't know if I'm going to like it. it. is my new favorite combination, yeah. you know, the, the walnuts and eggplant um, combination. That's one of the new recipes I added to the book. Oh. Because I had the beet puree, and I had variations, but I didn't have an eggplant, eggplant one. Eggplant one, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's very interesting, the interesting combinations. That's why I always think of it. It has this, I don't know, to me, more 
for being such rustic countryside, yet it's more in the northern mountain area, more Middle Eastern, more mm-hmm. Turkish. It has, I guess, and it's just all in the use of, of all the herbs and spices. You know. One of the things I really would love to trace someday is if you look at uh, just the word Hachapuri, Puri is obviously Hindi. the Hindi yeah. word for bread. They have another fabulous dish called chicken tabaka, which has since become a, a classic part of Russian repertoire as well because uh. people love it so much. And it's basically uh, the same as, um, you know, chicken under a brick. Um, it's been uh, split, spat- spatchcocked, and then grilled, uh, usually on a cast iron skillet. And the word tapa is a Hindi word from, you know, northern India. Hmm. And so I really think that on the trade routes, a lot was coming from India, and that connection needs to be followed. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, it's it's wonderful because they've been either through the different wars and, you know, incursions and, and or spice travel or, you mm-hmm. know, travelers. They've embraced a lot of these other cultures. They've embraced, but they haven't lost what was Good. theirs. That's, that's They've important. kept intact. That's very important. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we do, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, some of the traditions and practices of the food, particularly uh, the northern regions and cheese, as you said, and maybe southern fruit. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Sake Man. What is Sake Man? Sake Man are judo athletes wearing Lucha Libre inspired masks that act as sake heroes. This team of athletes moonlight as sake educational professionals spreading sake to the world. Learn more about their mission and their favorite sakes at saketotheworld.com. That's saketotheworld.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio has plenty more. Hi, I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I'm the host of Feast Your Ears here on HRN. My show explores the world of food through storytelling. Every week, I talk with people inside and outside the food world about how experience has shaped what they eat and cook. You can find Feast Your Ears wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Dara Goldstein, who has uh, written, well, it's actually... The publishers have um, put a new edition out, a 25th anniversary edition, and with a lot of added essays by Dara called The Georgian Feast. And we've been talking, you were talking so much about um, walnuts and the inclusion of walnuts, but not only walnuts, there's hazelnuts and almonds, a lot of nuts growing. A lot, they, I'm just amazed at the bounty of what they grow. But we would be remiss if we didn't discuss, I like to call them church keys, but it's not church <laughs> keys, church, church Kelly, the, the, how, how do you, oh, the, church Kella, church Kella, I call oh, them church keys because church I can keys. never remember uh, church Kella. That's a Kella. good mnemonic. <laughs> right. Um, but they're, but describe them because they oh. are just, they're, mm, they're wonderful. I'm sorry, I'm going to say something <laughs> that just came to mind. I, I have an Iranian friend and um, I was describing church Kella to him and he said, Oh, in Iran, we called those judges pricks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, church so, key or judges prick, whatever yeah, you Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so basically, you take uh, walnuts, sometimes hazelnuts, but walnuts are classic, 
and you thread them on a string or on some uh, sturdy twine. And then you dip it repeatedly in uh, fresh grape juice. Kind of like candle making, right? (laughs) It is like candle making. And um, you've thickened it a little bit with cornstarch so that it will stick. And you just dip and dip and dip until you have this beautiful long uh, string of grape-coated walnuts but they're, they're really but you have to understand well I'll, I'll post a picture of it they're packed in really close together yeah and, and so it's a confection and yeah. then you slice it uh into rounds and it's a little bit chewy so it it is like having dried fruit except there's a nut in the center and you uh pull the string out obviously you don't need the string <laughs> but uh, they're sold on the roadsides or in the market, and you see many different colors because you can use different grapes, obviously. Oh, yeah. And so you have this range from uh, burgundy to a kind of mahogany to something that's more golden, and it's quite beautiful. The Georgians don't have a real repertoire of baked goods and sweets mm. the way we understand it, but they eat uh, the churchella, they have a lot of fresh fruit, and they do have some baked goods, but it's not really their... Uh, well, it also preserves the walnuts, does it not? It does. So they oh, last, so absolutely. Yeah, they last a long time. Yeah. They don't get rancid. They say, yeah, preserved. And it's great. I'll try to find a photograph that I can post it because it looks like a, a beaded curtain. If you see them standing on the roadside, yeah. it looks like a beaded curtain of all these strings of, of, of dipped walnuts. Wow, just marvelous. Um, I, I did say that I wanted to talk about northern reaches and then the southern tropical or subtropical uh like milk products and cheese really were not eaten in a lot of the the parts even though they were that close because it was only made up in the northern region is that correct or is that no i mean they were making uh fresh cheese so the soguni is a fresher cheese um they were making or and still are making aged cheese in the mountains and that uh tends to be sheep's milk Mm -hmm. that they use instead of cow's milk because obviously they're pasturing the sheep there. There's an area called Tusheti in the high Caucasus that is very remote and uh, very wild. And the very traditional way of making this cheese was uh, to age it in um, a wineskin, which, you know, was basically you take the, the sheep and you slaughter it and uh, you clean it and you turn it inside out and you actually have the fur on the inside and you put the the fresh cheese in there and let it age and I know it sounds a little off-putting but Mm -hmm. it uh, (laughs) is very sharp and quite wonderful it's called they call it gouda they call it Gouda. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it's, it has nothing to do with the Dutch cheese, mm. but um, so that's a very traditional cheese. Well, do, so they turn it inside out and you're putting it against the. Yeah, so it, it's getting a lot of different um, bacteria that that help it to age. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's, that is interesting. <laughs> what I. Um, there are all these, all of these um, references to different plants that grow and they keep mentioning eucalyptus all the time eucalyptus grown is there a lot of luck eucalyptus grown? yeah it's not uh, that's in the subtropical yeah, areas and yeah. it's not native and it's not really oh. part of what yeah, I, I was think of when i think I of georgia um however in some of those 
subtropical regions and other and other regions, there are fruits that you don't hear a lot about here in in the Western culture. My favorite is probably. Uh, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it in English. Feijoa. Feijoa. Yeah. I would say feijoa. I, I learned or feijoa. to say it uh, feijoa. Mm. Um, and I first tasted it in Georgia. And what they did there, besides just eating it fresh, and it is, I don't know, flavors somewhat like a cross between passion fruit and pineapple. I mean, it's just got this tropical flavor. It's so exquisite and so aromatic. But how, they how were about just... It? As big as your fist, sort of, or...? Um, maybe a little bigger than my fist, but <laughs> my husband's fist, perhaps. Um, just uh, grind it with sugar to preserve it, mm. and or you can make a jam out of it, or just mm-hmm. eat it plain. Mm-hmm. It's not usually used in cooking. The fruit that they use most in cooking, it would be plums, but also quince. Quince. What and about that, medlar? And they, uh, not really. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Interesting that to to read about all these to me, exotic, you know, fruits being grown. And, of course, because they, they have this abundance of fruit, and you say they don't have a, a real um, culture of baked goods or so much, they, make, they use the fruits and they preserve it, and they make fruit leather, right? Yes, uh, tlapi, it's called. And uh, the, the classic one would be made from the uh, plum Mm. And again, you see those in a whole range of different flavors. They also use apricots a lot for that. And uh, you can roll it up the way you would find food leather sold here in the States or uh, just have pieces that you tear off and add to soups or stews to give that little bit oh, of sourness. Sour sweetness. Again, yeah. to mitigate the, the richness of the stew, it just adds that beautiful note of sour uh-huh. and fruitiness that uh, I think uh, makes the dish transcend what it would just be without it. Interesting. Uh, you mentioned that they are eating more meats now, but... And it, everything seems to be cooked outside. Well, in fact, this whole culture that you describe of living outside. Yes, well, they like to tie that to the myth of Prometheus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, this is the way we're supposed to cook. But it's true. Um, there's, I mean, it sounds cliched to say that there's this deep connection with nature. But uh, they really love to feast. And in the first edition of the book, I had a lot of reproductions of this wonderful Georgian neo-primitivist artist named uh, Nico Pirasmani. And he sh- had, so he was from the early 20th century, mm-hmm. beautiful scenes of people feasting outdoors. But what is significant is that they always spread a tablecloth. The, the word for tablecloth in Georgian is supra. Oh, that's and that where, so, became the metonymy for feast. feast. Yeah. Uh, so there, it's always ritualized. But the food, well, as you know, always tastes better outdoors. Outside, right. And uh, not just the grilling, which tends to be the man's job, as it is in many cultures, but they also have these beautiful uh, clay pots that are only about, say, two inches high, and they stack them over a fire, and food inside uh, both bakes and steams at the same time. Mm. So they do mushrooms that way. These are called ketsi. And they also bake, in the western part of the country, they bake cornbread 
oh, in oh. these. So, so it's like a like a steam basket, like a stacked. It's, steam it's like a steam basket, yeah. except it's done over an open fire without water. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, tell me about some of the feasts. I mean, there's a there's an important person involved in all the feasts. Yes, the tamada. Yes, <laughs> that's the toast. I mean, we call. Toastmaster, Toastmaster. <laughs> but that doesn't begin to describe the artistry of the Toastmaster in Georgia. Traditionally, it's a man. And there used to be schools where you went because it's not just, oh, let's raise a toast to so and so. It's really um, creating a sense of continuity with the past and remembering everything that Georgia has been and will continue to be as a nation, as a, uh, a country where uh, people still believe in a Georgian ideal. And the other important function is uh, sort of as a, a newscaster, <laughs> which again gives the wrong impression in English, but you have a, a gathering around a table and the Toastmaster needs to know who has had a loss or who has had a success. And throughout the evening, and these feasts go on for hours, and there's always wine poured for each, each toast. So it, it's quite a ritualized thing. But um, the Toastmaster will announce so-and-so, let's drink to so-and-so because. And so it's a way of sharing news, of giving support to people, of celebrating, but also mourning with someone. And it, it creates a sense of kinship. Hmm. And, so, then, and there are many of these throughout a feast, I would imagine. Many, many, <laughs> many. And it, it's also poetry. It's not just uh, brief, but it, it's highly poetic. And then there are intermezzos throughout the feast as more food is brought in and people spontaneously break into song. And Georgian singing is just, a cappella singing is extraordinary. So that's an important part of the feast, too. And are they generally folk tales? They, they tell, the songs tell stories? Or are they yeah. just... Yeah. yeah. The feasts in the past, I mean, they would probably involve the whole town, I would imagine. But um, the history of the feasts, what, was there a reason, I mean, they just, was a way of gathering? People ate communally, they had a communal oven. Why? What was the bring, bringing together? Um, or if you, I mean, if you, yeah, I think about that. I don't know that it involved entire communities from the start. I really think it is more families and relatives and friends and sort of expanding out like that. But again, it's a way of affirming um, friendship, mm. affirming love, affirming unity especially in the face of all of these right. incursions right. over the centuries. So tell me what would be served. Anna. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I always found extraordinary was I was brought up in a household where um, you serve each course and you clear the course before you bring the next course. <laughs> and in Georgia, when you approach the table, everything that you think is going to be for the feast is spread out on the table. So these are all the things that we would think of as appetizers. But uh, they would be the different vegetable purees, the walnut um, stuffed eggplant rolls that we were just talking about during the break. 
uh, beautiful breads that have been baked in the Georgian oven, which is called a tonnet. Yeah, describe that. So it's, again, one of these words that that makes me think, oh, India, tandoor. It's basically the same thing. So it's a big clay oven. And again, it's called the tonnet. T-O-N-E, but Mm -hmm. tonnet. Um, and bread dough is slapped against the sides of the hot clay. Uh, the classic Georgian loaf is called shoti, and what's beautiful about it is that it has a thick um, central part, and then it tapers to a narrower end so that you can have both the soft crumb, if that's what you like, or the crisp oh, end. <laughs> yeah, so you can have a happy marriage. Yeah. Um, so you have the bread and uh, just so many different dishes. Mm. But then uh, soup might be brought in. Uh, Hachapuri, hot from the oven, might be brought in. Or another kind of stuffed pie. They also stuff it with uh, mashed beans or sometimes potatoes or greens. Or there's a beautiful stuffed meat pie from the western part of the country called Svaneti that is mm. known as kubdari, which is one of my favorites. And as all of these dishes are brought out, they're progressively stacked upon one upon the other. And then the main courses come out, which uh, might be grilled meats or a beautiful stew or, um, well, the satsivi, the chicken in the walnut sauce would have come out earlier. So by the end of the table, it is towering. Hmm. And uh, you also have wine bottles and you have soda. Uh, they make a tarragon soda that they often serve that's bright green. And it, it's to the eye, it is absolutely abundant, but also chaotic if you grew up in a household like I did. <laughs> Well, we and we have to talk about wine. Wine is so much a part of their culture. And now it's becoming, again, another hot topic and hot property and, and very popular. And that's the natural wine or the orange wine, as, yes. we, as we call it. So um, the Georgians have been making, I like to call it amber instead of yes. orange. Yes. I just think it's a, a nicer word. Right. And, and, somehow, more, and, and more accurately descriptive. Um, so uh, they put the... Of the freshly squeezed uh, juice into this kvevri, this uh, clay amphora, along with the stems and the skins. And oxidation occurs, and so it takes on this really beautiful color. And the tradi- that's the traditional way of winemaking. And it's not something that was just discovered 10 years ago in <laughs> Slovenia or Italy or whoever is claiming it. Right. That's, it's just their, it's their culture for, yeah. and as you said, 8,000 years. Yeah, right? and they're reviving it because during the Soviet years, a lot of the vines were torn out. And the winemaking practices tended to um, be pushed towards the direction of sweetness since the major market was Russian and the Russians had, at that time, they're getting more sophisticated now, but a, a taste for sweeter wines. Mm. And so a lot of these old methods were somewhat lost. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, a lot of uh, 
foreign companies came in to do joint ventures, but they wanted the European style of winemaking, and they brought in lots of money to have steel casks and everything. But now there's this wonderful artisanal revival. And they're, and they're actually using the Cavevri? Again, and now Cavevri are, I mean, I think there's a waiting list <laughs> because they can't produce enough uh, for the demand for people who want to start doing it in the age-old way again. Wow. I mean, people always were making their own wine. But so they still have a lot of these feasts. The feasts are still very popular. Oh, I, I mean, any uh, occasion is cause for a feast. So I say I arrive or you arrive and you meet people, there will be a supra to honor your visit or someone gets good grades, you know, you might <laughs> decide to have a supra for that. They're wow. very spontaneous. And is it sort of like potluck? People bring things? Oh, or no. It's always no, served no, no. by, they choose who's going to do the cooking? Or Well, I mean, someone decides to have people to dinner, and that is, it turn, It always somehow turns into a feast. Uh, you quoted um, a, a little wonderful passage from the poet Rustavelli uh-huh. about feasting, and I'll, I printed it up so I can, I can okay. read it for you. 12th century. <laughs> yeah, 12th century, Rustavelli, and about talking about all the feasts, and he says, spending on feasting and wine is better than hoarding our substance. That which we give makes us richer. That which we hoard is lost. So this is, I mean, I guess questioning how these people during such time of turmoil, and obviously they probably didn't have a lot, Mm -hmm. and they don't spend it on other things. They would rather spend it on, on hosting people to dinner and throwing big dinners right well the idea is that a guest is a gift from heaven right the whole back to the hospitality yeah and also the georgian creation myth that i start my book with i don't know if you remember that you can you can please if there's time i'll I'll (laughs) tell very briefly that (laughs) basically the georgians are sitting around feasting and it is the beginning of the world and god is going around creating the world and he's giving different parts of the world to different people and the georgians are feasting so he goes and gives away a lot and he comes back after however many days it was i guess six six days seven days (laughs) and um he looks and the georgians are still sitting there feasting and he says what have you done i've given away all the world and you're still sitting here and you didn't claim your portion and now the only thing that's left is what I was saving for myself, the most beautiful (laughs) part of the world. And they just looked at him, and they said, but God, we have been feasting and honoring you and giving thanks to you, and what could be a better way to spend time? And so God gave them the part of the world that he had intended for himself, and that's how the Georgians came to live in Georgia, in the most beautiful... God's country. In God's country. <laughs> well, that's, that's absolutely beautiful. They... Uh, you also there. You mentioned that or I can't remember who the poet is that said, "You go to Georgia, and you come back a poet." Oh, some I don't, you may not remember I, either. But what it's, I it's, remember is Pushkin. You know the great oh, maybe Russian national. No, yeah. he said that every Georgian dish is a poem. Yes, yes, I do remember that. Now this was a, you, anyone who goes to Russia and uh, goes to Georgia 
comes back a poet. Oh, well. Well, I have to say... <laughs> I don't know how poetic I am right now. Well, I will say that you you certainly, having been to Georgia a couple of times, you came back a poet because... Oh, more than a couple of times. More than a couple of <laughs> times. See? Yeah, see? It took you maybe more than a couple of, But I will say, reading some of those essays, they are... They're not just straight descriptions, but they are very poetic. You really put a beautiful spin and a very... Um, I, I don't know how to, to say it, but you just you sort of set it in a cultural mode that is is beautiful and very descriptive. Thank you, Linda. So you did come back a poet. <laughs> Thank you. you. <laughs> um, one one last thing that kind of caught my attention, and and I'm, I'm I'm not sure. Maybe I didn't read on to find out why, but you said that there was one province, Racha, where for some reason or other that's where all the best Georgian chefs come from what what is the reasoning behind that or what's the I, I honestly can't answer that but it, that but that's what it is they all come from this one region in particular? well not all not all okay. you know I wrote that 25 years ago I have not gone on to research it I don't think it's true anymore I would imagine not <laughs> with the popularity of the of the culture and right. the food so um there were some famous chefs who came from there. Um, it is a remote province, and I think that what I would say now is that it's because uh, they were exposed to really interesting foodways there that hadn't been influenced so much by outside uh, forces. But I can't really answer yeah. that with intelligence. Well, that leads up to my final question and last point and that is if so those who go and travel to Georgia today will they find this experience are there still these old ways and old tradition existing will they find kind of feel and get in touch a bit with with the old culture I'd say that if you travel independently you will because you'll meet people, the Georgians are wonderfully friendly, and they'll invite you in, and they'll regale you, even if you can't speak a common language. If you go with a tour group, you will be shown these things. Feasts will be organized for you in restaurants, so you'll taste Georgian food, to be sure, and you'll have fantastic, sensual um Sensory, sensory taste experiences, but you won't necessarily get into people's homes. Mm-hmm. So, what about, I would. Is there any agritourism existing that you know of? There is some, and um, there are a couple of uh, companies that are more focused on culinary experience hmm. that I think uh, would be the way if you feel the need to go with a group. But I actually think it's a very approachable country. Yeah, I mean, not terribly large, as long as you do your research ahead of time. Yeah. And your book is a very good place to start. (laughs) And get a driver. Don't try to drive by yourself. (laughs) Dangerous roads up those mountains. Yeah. High peaks, yes. The Caucasus are not, not to be messed with, right? Well, it is just a joy, once again, to talk to you. Always a font of knowledge, on, and in-depth knowledge, and I, I so appreciate it. It was fun, Linda. Thanks yeah. so much for having me. And what a great book. So it's a new edition, the 25th edition of a Georgian, the Georgian, the Georgian Feast. And um, I, by University of, uh, by the, um, University University of California, California Press. Press, right? And uh, it just 
it's just a, such a treat and such a treasure. And thank, thank you. you so much. And thank you for listening. Once again, this has been A Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.